0: On the show today, Apple announces several privacy improvements as part of its next major software update. The FBI and other international law enforcement agencies admit to operating an encrypted chat app. New details emerge as investigations into the Colonial Pipeline attack continue. Our scam of the day discusses a way that attackers get around two-factor authentication And today's tip teaches you how to get away from the big tech companies. All of that and more is coming up on the June 14th, 2021 edition of Cybersecurity Made Personal. Helping you stay safe in a connected world. This is Cybersecurity Made Personal. Hello and welcome to the Cybersecurity Made Personal podcast. The safest podcast on the internet. I'm your host, Jim Herman. I have four stories on the news beat for you today. We begin with news from Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference, where the Cupertino company announced new features to be built into its next versions of iOS and watchOS. One significant privacy addition builds on the release of its app transparency features earlier this year. The new App Privacy Report will allow you to see how often apps have used permissions that they have been granted. So for example, if you grant an app permissions, such as microphone access or location data, you'll now be able to see how often the app takes advantage of those permissions. In another feature, Apple will allow users to create iCloud emails through its mail app that will then forward the email to your personal email account. This will allow you to hide your actual email address from a company, and it will allow you to stop emails from reaching your inbox if use of that address is abused. This feature has been provided through third-party companies already, but it seems that Apple is now looking to integrate this as a basic feature of iOS. All in all, both of these changes are excellent moves for improving user privacy. Moving to law enforcement news, it was revealed last week that the FBI, the Australian Federal Police, and Interpol conducted a joint operation that intercepted and read text messages from suspected criminals around the world. The operation began as these agencies began to operate an encrypted chat platform of their own and used undercover agents to promote it in criminal networks. The service used secure smartphones that could only run the specialized app and nothing else, making criminals believe that it was fully secure communication. However, the FBI had set up a man-in-the-middle scheme which decrypted the communications and sent copies of the messages back to law enforcement. Due to procedural issues, the messages were generally reviewed by Australian authorities but copies of relevant messages were regularly sent to the appropriate agencies. Over the course of this operation, the service amassed 12,000 users from 300 criminal organizations operating across over 100 countries. And in an update to a story we've discussed frequently on this show, two additional details have come out regarding the Colonial Pipeline attack. First, in a Senate hearing last week, it was revealed that the attack began as a result of a compromised VPN credential that did not have two factor authentication configured. Colonial Pipeline's CEO stated that the password on the account was complex, but the lack of two factor authentication allowed the attack to take place once the credentials had been compromised. However, in some good news, the FBI did manage to recover a significant portion of the ransom that was paid by Colonial. A ransom of 75 bitcoins was paid, and approximately 64 of those bitcoins were recovered. Unfortunately, due to the decline in the value of the exchange rate, the value of the bitcoin recovered was only around half the amount that was paid the FBI traced the Bitcoin sent through several different addresses until it was moved into one where the FBI could seize it. Since Bitcoin transactions are available on a public ledger, it is relatively easy to trace where it's been transferred. However, the exact method that was used to seize the Bitcoin has not been revealed. And finally, one congressman learned a hard lesson this week About password security, Alabama Congressman Mo Brooks was upset over actions taken by fellow Congressman Eric Swalwell. Brooks claimed that Swalwell's team had committed criminal trespassing when someone arrived to serve a subpoena related to his role in the January 6th events at the Capitol. Brooks tweeted his claim along with a picture of the relevant statute pulled up on his computer screen. However, the image posted was not a screenshot, but a photo taken from his phone, which meant that more than just the screen was showing. And taped to the bottom of his monitor was a piece of paper which appeared to list a pin and the password to his Gmail account. The tweet was deleted later in the day, but who knows how many people may have accessed his account before that was pointed out to him. Of course, I'd like to think that he had two-factor authentication enabled to protect his accounts, but given that he was taping passwords to his monitor, it seems like that might have been a little too much to ask for. And now we move on to the scam of the day. Today's scam is the verification call. This is a very simple scam that happens after your password has been compromised. The attacker will compromise your password through some method. Maybe it's compromised from the site itself, maybe from a different site where you use the same password, or maybe you used one that the attacker was able to brute force or fish out of you. Regardless of the method used, the attacker now has your username and password, but can't get past the two factor verification code the site is texting or emailing to you. In order to get access to your account, the scammer will contact you, usually by phone. They'll inform you there's been some kind of problem with your account, and they'll tell you you need to verify your identity by giving them the code in the text message. Then, the scammer will use your username and password to sign in and say you'll be receiving the code. You receive the code, give it back to the scammer thinking you're verifying your identity, and the scammer now has access to that account. It's important to remember that on almost every site, these codes are used for logging into the website and not anything else. They're not generally used for verification when you're speaking to someone over the phone. If someone does call you and wants you to provide verification through text message, don't provide it. Let them know that you'll call them back. But don't use the number that showed up on your caller ID, and don't use the number the person gives you. Go to the website for the company that's supposedly calling you and get their legitimate support number. That's the only way to make sure you are being contacted by a legitimate company representative and not by a scammer. If you find a scam you think we'd like to talk about on the show, you can send it to us at scam at cybersecuritymadepersonal.com. And now it's time for our Cybersecurity Pop Quiz. Each week, we ask you a question in the field of online security or privacy, And it's your job to figure out the right answer today's question is a true or false question the question is when a receipt or a deposit slip only lists the last four digits of a credit card number that information is completely safe and you do not need to take any extra precautions with it true or false the answer will be revealed in next week's episode But if you want to know it right away, you can go to cybersecuritymadepersonal.com slash popquiz to submit your guess and find out if you're right. Plus, if you submit your guess on the website, regardless of whether you're right or wrong, you will be entered to win a $25 Amazon gift card when we conclude Season 3 in August. But your guess to this question must be submitted before the next episode airs Monday, June 21st. For official giveaway rules, visit cybersecuritymadepersonal.com slash quizrules. Last week's question was, which of the following is not a likely attack when you use a Wi-Fi network? A. Your data could be intercepted and monitored. B. The network could be accessed from outside your home or business. C. Your computer could be used to send spam emails. Or D. The encryption on your network could be compromised if it's not set up correctly. The correct answer is C. While it's possible that your computer could be compromised while on a public Wi-Fi network and then used to send spam, that's not very likely. All of the others are much more likely attacks. When you use a Wi-Fi network, everything your computer sends out is broadcast and can be read by anyone else in range. While computers generally only pay attention to messages sent to them, you can use software to capture everything and read it. That's why it's so important to have a password on your network. The password doesn't just keep people off, it also helps set up the encryption. And when you set up the network in your home or business, you must remember that the signal could still be picked up outside. Now, there's no practical way to have strong signal inside your home without the signal also reaching outside. But you don't want someone two houses down to be able to pick up signal from that router. If you notice that you can connect to your network from a significant distance away from your home or business, Check the router settings to see if there's a power option. This will reduce how far the router can reach. And finally, if you don't choose the proper encryption method, someone could compromise your password and get on your network. Always use WPA3 if it's available, or WPA2 if your router doesn't support WPA3. Don't use WPA or WEP, WEP, as these can be easily compromised. The big tech companies became big because they figured out how to make our lives better, and in many cases, they did it all for free. But that free access came with a cost, your privacy. If you want to get away from the big tech companies, you do have alternatives. We'll discuss some of those options when we come back from this short break. Hi, it's Jim. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love it if you could follow us in your favorite podcast player. That will ensure you never miss an episode. And while you're there, we'd also appreciate it if you could rate the show and give us a review. We'd love to hear what your thoughts are. And finally, the best review that someone can give us is to tell their friends about the show. Invite them to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or send them to our website, cybersecuritymadepersonal.com, where they can find links to the show in all the major podcast players. Thanks for your support, and now back to the show. The term big tech is thrown around a lot today, and it's usually used in a derogatory manner toward the companies. But it seems that it's more difficult than ever to define what the term actually means and why it's developed such a negative connotation. Generally, when I think of the big tech companies, I'm thinking of the collection of a few companies that offer tech products and engage in data collection for advertising. That would primarily include Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Twitter. While there's certainly other companies that could be added to the list, if you really want to get away from big tech, you're going to want to focus on these six companies first. But the truth is that while it's possible to get rid of the big tech companies, it's not easy and it may make you feel left out in some ways, such as when you miss invites sent through Facebook or Google Calendar. And you're also likely at the mercy of your employer for the products you use at work. If your company uses Microsoft or Google products, you're almost certainly going to be stuck using them at your job. Before we get into some of the ways to avoid big tech, I want to give you this word of warning. Due to the content of this episode, I've decided it makes sense to break my typical rule of not recommending specific software and apps on the show. So everything mentioned here are items I recommend as of June 2021. If you're listening to this episode well after the release date, I recommend checking cybersecuritymadepersonal.com/recommendations to see my most up-to-date software recommendations. So now that we've covered that, what are some of the ways that you can get away from the big tech companies? First, you can start by looking for open-source software to replace the software that you use. The open-source community is a great place to find quality software for free. But be careful and do research before you download and try out new software, even if it is open source. What is open source software? It's software where the source code for the programs are made available for free. You can download the program and run it as it's been written, or if you know how to write code for software, you could modify it to make it work better for you. And if there is a feature you think would improve the software for everyone, you can suggest it and it might be included in a future update. You might be wondering, is this software actually free? Yes, it truly is. The companies behind many of the biggest open source products have figured out additional ways to monetize the software, such as through support packages or customizations for businesses that wish to use it. And of course, there are also some open source products that are managed by just a few individuals as well. There are some excellent open source software options to help you get away from the big tech companies. For example, if you want to get away from Microsoft's two big cash cows, the Office Suite and Windows, there are great alternatives available in the open source community. LibreOffice is the leading open source Office Suite. It offers options that replace most of the products available in Microsoft's Office Suite. Writer is an alternative for Word, Calc for Excel, Impress for PowerPoint, and Base for Access. It also offers Draw for Diagramming and Math for Editing Formulas. The many different versions of the Linux project are also a great alternative to Windows. If you're unfamiliar with the various Linux versions, I would recommend starting with Ubuntu. While it may not be the best version, though I'm sure there's many fans out there who would disagree with me, it's one of the easiest to start with as you transition from Windows to Linux. However, be aware that many of your usual Windows applications will not have Linux versions. You do have the option to try running it with Wine, which in this case is a Windows emulator, not an alcoholic beverage. But I've only had mixed results getting Windows software to work with Wine, and those that did work often required extra steps in order to make it fully functional. But you may be able to find open source alternatives for software you use that will work with Linux. And Linux isn't limited to just computers either. There are smartphone versions available for many Linux flavors that are available on some phones. OnePlus and Nokia are two of the companies that offer Linux phones. If you want to ditch iOS and Android and go the Linux phone route, I highly recommend getting a new phone with the software pre-installed. While it's hypothetically possible to get it running on an existing phone, it's going to be a more complicated task than you probably want to take on. And while we're on the subject of smartphones, we'll take a brief detour to two additional options that aren't open source. Other smartphone alternatives include the light phone and the black phone. The light phone is a scaled down phone that only offers a limited number of features. It's an excellent phone for someone who wants the basic useful features of a smartphone without the things like social media and email. The Black phone is a full smartphone that's fully encrypted and designed for privacy and security. It runs its own operating system, so you're not using Google's Android software. But moving back to open source software, there are many open source alternatives for different types of software you may use. For example, you can find open source audio and video editing programs. In fact, when I record this podcast, I use Audacity, which is an open source audio recording and editing program. No matter what you're looking for, you can probably find an open source program that will do at least some of what the big tech options do. The open source option may not have every feature available in paid programs, so you'll have to try it out and see if it works for you. If you're looking to get rid of Google's offerings, you also have options. For example, I recently decided to ditch the Gmail account I had since the early 2000s and go with ProtonMail an encrypted email service. All of my emails are encrypted when they arrive to ProtonMail servers, and they can only be decrypted using my password. If ProtonMail servers were compromised, the attackers wouldn't be able to see anything without also knowing my password. ProtonMail has a free plan, but you'll likely need to pay a small amount every month In order to take full advantage of what it has to offer, the Proton suite also includes an encrypted calendar which works like Google Calendar. The one major disadvantage I've found is that it's challenging to share your calendar with others, but hopefully they will build that feature into the product soon. And Proton also offers Proton Drive, which is currently in beta testing mode for their paying customers. It will work like Google Drive, allowing for collaboration, but the files will be fully encrypted. If you're looking for an option that you can use right now, SpiderOak's CrossClave is a great alternative. I don't currently use it, but I have tried it out in the past, and I fully trust the company's security practices. Since I already use Proton's email and calendar, I just made the decision to wait for the invitation to start using their cloud file option. Google's biggest cash cow is still its search engine. Google became the king of search by providing quality results consistently, but every search you make on the service is tracked for advertising. If you decide you want to ditch Google search, there are other privacy-focused search engines that you can use. DuckDuckGo is probably the leader in privacy-focused search. It doesn't use your search history or other data to personalize its results. StartPage is another good option. It actually uses Google search results, but it acts as an intermediary to keep your data away from Google itself. And finally, another major product from Google is its Chrome browser. There are actually two parts to the Chrome Browser that are both operated by Google. The base code, which is called Chromium, is managed by Google, but it's open source. And then Google has built the Chrome Browser on top of the Chromium code. If you're focused on privacy, Brave is likely the best browser for you. Brave is a web browser built on privacy. Brave does use the Chromium base code, but it blocks advertising and trackers by default. And there's also a mobile version of Brave available for your phone or tablet. Another browser that I like is the Vivaldi browser. Like Brave, it has many privacy features built into it, and it also offers many other features that I've found extremely useful. Getting off of the big social media sites is going to be a challenge, primarily because of the social part of it. You can't just decide to switch to some other social media platform, like you could decide to switch from Windows to Linux. You have to get your friends to do it with you, or the social part won't make sense anymore. However, one area where you can get off of social media is in communities. You can find communities off of the major social media sites for many of your interests. And finally, if you're looking for an alternative to Amazon, the best thing you can do is go down the street and hit up a local business. Many of these retailers were struggling even before the pandemic, and the last year certainly hasn't helped. And of course, you can also go to other websites that work with small businesses or individuals such as Etsy. Getting away from the big tech companies isn't something you're going to be able to do overnight. They've been very good at working their way into our lives to the point where they feel like they're indispensable. But if you start taking steps now, you can gradually reduce the amount of data that you're giving them. And remember, Your data is the real product these big tech companies are selling. So that's all for today. Thanks for listening, and come back again next Monday, where we will discuss some strategies to handle cookies. So until next time, stay safe. Thanks again for joining us for the Cybersecurity Made Personal podcast. Check out the show notes page linked in the description for links to the articles mentioned, more information about today's tip, and a transcription of this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you would consider visiting our welcome page at cybersecuritymadepersonal.com welcome. There you can find more information about the show and links to some of our most popular episodes. Cybersecurity Made Personal is provided for educational purposes only. Don't take any action on your computer unless you fully understand what you are doing and the possible consequences. Visit cybersecuritymadepersonal.com slash disclaimer for more information. Cybersecurity Made Personal is a production of Personal Cybersecurity, LLC. I'm Jim Herman. Thanks for listening and stay safe.